Welcome to foreverfit.tv, your online source for fitness, nutrition, and lifestyle. Hi, I'm Nicola Riley, a personal trainer, nutrition, and lifestyle coach, and joining me today is Leah Keith. Leah is the author of the fantastic book, Vegetarian Myth. This is a book about sustainable farming and agriculture today. The book has truly opened my eyes up. Leah is, was a vegan for 20 years, so coming from an angle that makes Leah's knowledge and advice real and incredibly valuable. Leah has studied the world's food supply and the problems that we're facing today. I highly recommend this book for anyone out there who cares about the planet and the food that they eat. It is such a great pleasure to have you on the show, Leah, so welcome. Well, thanks for that wonderful wonderful introduction. It's so great to have you on the show. Hey, so why don't you just start telling the listeners a little bit about yourself, why you're a vegan and why you stopped after 20 years? Well, I think I became a vegan for the reasons that most people do, which was that I found out about factory farming. And it was so horrifying that I didn't want to participate in it anymore. And at the time, I was only 16 years old, so I didn't have any more information at my fingertips. I only knew... Uh, what I was hearing from the other young people in my life who were vegans. Um, and it made sense what they told me. It's just that I didn't have anything to compare it to. You know, I grew up in a very urban environment. Um, I had never been to a farm. I mean, I just had no idea where food came from. So when presented with the horrors of factory farming, I think like many people, I was just completely repulsed by what was happening and I didn't want anything to do with it. And the vegans, you know, they, they gave me this complete program. Like if, if you go vegan, you can save the animals. You can, you know, save the planet. You can save hungry people from hunger. So it was like this complete, you know, um, an answer to all these problems that were things that I cared about a lot. And so I just, I took it on just completely within two weeks. I had gone totally vegan and I basically didn't look back. Um, the reason that I stopped doing it was that my health failed completely. That after 20 years, the damage was pretty permanent and all that time, you know, it's really hard when you take on something like veganism because because I think for most of us, it becomes an identity. It's not just what we eat. You know, it becomes a part of who we are. And that makes it really hard to question it. You know, when you're faced with counter-information, with facts and figures that don't match what you think is true about the world, um, you know, it feels like you're being attacked yourself rather than, oh, this is new information. Let's see if this fits into my framework or if I need to adjust how I look at the world. It becomes, you know, something that's really terrifying to your, your sort of core sense of who you are. And I think that's true for a lot of vegans, and it was certainly true for me. Um, so, you know, I stumbled along for all those years getting more and more physically depleted and debilitated, and it never occurred to me it was the diet. I mean, I just, I, it couldn't be true that the diet could hurt me because it seemed like the most wonderful, honorable, compassionate thing to do was to be a vegan. So how could that not work? And in the end, it didn't. So that, you know, is, is kind of my story in a nutshell. But I mean, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was because I really, really want this next generation of compassionate and engaged young people to have better information before they do this kind of damage. Because I have to tell you, I'm 48 years old, and all my friends tried this to some extent. You know, we're all very engaged people. We're very politically minded. And we all did damage on one level or another uh, from, from attending to that diet for however long we did it. And those of us who did it the longest ended up the most damaged. So I really want to stop you know, the 16, 18, 20-year-olds who do feel very strongly about these issues, I, I want them to have more complete information before they take on something as potentially damaging as veganism. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, so what is the, the issue with um, 
you know, the veganism and grains. So what's your opinion of grains on the product of health and how, you know, it's in the food pyramid? Right. Okay, well, there's a few things to say about grains. The first is that agriculture is the single most destructive human activity. So this is the most destructive thing that people have done to the planet. And so you have to understand what agriculture is. You take a piece of land, you clear every living thing off it, and I mean down to the bacteria, and then you plant it to human use. So it's biotic cleansing. I mean, you're literally not giving any other creatures a place to live. So from, you know, the big megafauna like elephants or bison or, you know, black bears, all the way down to the bacteria that make life possible on this planet, they all are cleared off. And then all that's grown is those annual monocrops to feed humans. So, I mean, that's a long-winded way of saying mass extinction. And indeed, that's what's happened. Um, 98% of the old-growth forests are gone, and 99% of the world's grasslands are gone. Those are really grim statistics, and that is what agriculture has done. Um, so that's problem number one. I mean, I, I thought that agriculture was this wonderful nonviolent thing, and when you actually find out what it is and what it's done, um, it's pretty horrifying. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that it can never be sustainable because it's based on drawdown. And what that means is you're using up um, natural resources Natural communities, in fact, whole, whole biotic communities, are, are falling to the plow. And ultimately what it destroys, of course, is the topsoil. We owe our entire existence to six inches of soil and the fact that it rains. So land life, terrestrial life, is now completely at risk because humans have done agriculture. Um, and again, that's because you, know, you push all the other creatures off, the plants, the animals, the bacteria. They've got nowhere else to go. 200 species now go extinct every single day. I mean, it's really grim. And this is the cliff that we've pushed ourselves to by, by doing this, this activity called agriculture. So that's problem number one is that this can never be sustained. Um, as it stands now, having blown through all the topsoil, I mean, the planet's been basically skinned alive by doing agriculture. Um, what we've been eating for the last 50 years is fossil fuel because scientists figured out how to get nitrogen out of things like natural gas and oil, and they turn that into fertilizer that the plants can use. So that's what we're drawing down now is, is the fossil fuel. So we switched from using fossil soil. We used all that up, and now we're using fossil fuel instead. And this is not a plan with the future, clearly. I mean, these are resources that will never come again. Okay, so there's all that. It's not sustainable. It's not humane. It's, in fact, mass extinction. Then you have the really crazy stuff that's happened in the last 50 years, like factory farming. Now, factory farming was invented sometime in the 1950s, and the reason that it was invented is because that there was this mass glut of corn, particularly in the United States and Canada. Uh, there was a, um, an event called the Green Revolution, and this was where between the plant breeders and the people who could produce the cheap fertilizer from fossil fuel – Together, they were able to make these strains of things like corn and wheat that produced just astounding amounts of grain. And what happened at that point is that the price of grain fell dramatically, and it keeps falling every year. So these poor farmers, you know, every year they have to produce more corn just to make ends meet, right? Because the price keeps going down because of all these surpluses. And there's this mountain of corn now that just simply has nowhere to go. And at that point in the story... Somebody figured out, well, if you keep animals in these really horrible conditions, you know, on cement floors inside giant steel buildings and do nothing but feed them corn all day, um, they will get fat really fast. So it's a way to make really cheap meat, but it's a, a nightmare on every other level, on a you know, level of humane you know, animal rights, on the level of 
all that manure and, you know, what it does to the water table and the land, um, the amount of illness that's produced in these animals, and the fact that it produces food that really isn't fit for human consumption. But that's what created the green, the, the, this factory farming model was the fact that there was these huge surpluses of corn. And that all goes back to the fact that, you know, they, they've been using fossil fuel to create those surpluses. Okay, so that's there's that part of the equation. And then finally... The food that's created is, like I said, it's not actually fit for human consumption. Um, a few of the problems. The first is that there are um, essential fatty acids that are omega-6s and omega-3s. And I'm assuming some of your listeners at least are, you know, know about the omega-6s and omega-3s. Um, the problem is that when you eat a grain-based diet or you eat a diet that comes from animal products based on grain you will simply have too many omega-6s in your body. Um, the, the ratio should be 1 to 1, maybe 2 to 1. Scientists are, sort of go back and forth about this, but you should have at least an equal number of omega-6s and omega-3s, probably more omega-3s um, to be really happy and healthy. And by eating these grain-based diets, you're getting way too many omega-6s. In fact, I don't know how bad it is in New Zealand, but in the United States, there are people, you know, when they test their blood, they literally have no omega-3s at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really bad. And these are essential. And, and when they say essential fatty acids, I mean, what it means is you will get sick and eventually die if you don't have enough of these. Um, and this is the problem that, that plant products, all the seeds, so whether it's grains or nuts or beans, those are all seeds, because they're based on, on you know, plants, plants grow them, um, there's always going to be way too many omega-6s. Plants don't need omega-3s the way that, that animals do. Um, and again, if you feed those grains to animals, instead of having their native diet, what they're eating is this you know, bizarre combination of grains, which would never happen in nature, um, then the meat and the milk that comes from those animals, again, will have way too many omega-6s. Wow. So what that creates is um, essentially it creates a lot of inflammation in the body, whereas omega-3s calm inflammation. Now, you need a little bit of both. You do at times when there's a crisis, a, you know, a wound or some kind of injury, you do need some inflammation. Um, but we are all in this over-inflamed state now constantly from having these grain-based diets. So, you know, everything from autoimmune diseases to, to arthritis, um, Alzheimer's, depression, and on through to heart disease, I mean, the, uh, this overload of omega-6s is implicated very strongly just across the board in all of those modern diseases. And flipping to, omega, to a diet that's high in omega-3s, people often see dramatic uh, differences in their health. So that's one of the big problems. Another problem with this grain-based model is that there's simply no tryptophan in those foods. Corn is very low in tryptophan. Tryptophan is an essential amino acid, so it's a form of protein. It's a building block of protein. And I think we all have heard now about tryptophan and serotonin. It, it is the precursor to serotonin, the, you know, the, 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 that happy thing that you know makes us feel like we want to be alive. Without enough, you're just simply depressed all the time. So you know the model in the United States is that everybody has turned now to pharmaceuticals, and we've got things like Prozac and other SSRIs. But what that means is that you know we sh- we should have been getting this from our food all along, and when they flip to this grain-based model. Um, no matter how much meat or how many eggs or how much dairy you consume, if that animal was given a corn-based diet, there's simply no tryptophan, you know, because there just isn't any in corn. And so even if you're eating what should be an appropriate amount of meat or or other animal products, you're simply not getting enough tryptophan. And a lot of people have fingered that as the reason for this just gigantic upswell in depression in the United States is because of the grain feeding. So that's another problem of what it's done. Um, And I'd say those are the two major issues in terms of human health. But 
Um, and again, I've, I've just, I've seen this in my own life where people, um, switch to a more appropriate diet for the, for human beings and, you know, based on animals that are, you know, fed appropriately and, you know, depression can just evaporate in two or three weeks. This is after years of struggling with, with issues like depression. It, it can be really a dramatic change in, in people's health and well-being and in their health status. Yeah. So I would say those are the main issues with, um, with the health of, the grain-based animals. And of course there are the, all the humane issues about, you know, how horrible it is for the, for the cows and the other creatures that have to live in these terrible conditions. And I, I never mean to downplay that because it's a very real, I mean, it's something we should all care about clearly. So. Yeah, no, definitely. I, um, you kind of touched on it um, shortly, but you have a quote in your book and it says farming and annual monocrops will never be sustainable. Our only chance for judicious and, um, Humble human participation and perennial polycultures. What does this mean, and what are like what are monocrops, and what does this mean? Okay, um, so the the main um, kind of categories here that people should try to wrap their minds around. You have an annual monocrop, and that's agriculture, and on the other side you have perennial polyculture, which is exactly the opposite. So an annual monocrop means. Uh, first of all, these are annual plants, which means they only grow for one season. Now, nature is largely based on perennials, which is the opposite, plants that grow a long, long time. So whether it's trees or grasses, generally speaking, you know, those are plants that are going to you know, live for hundreds, even thousands of years in many cases. I, I live in the redwood trees, and you know, these trees have been around for 2,000 years, which is pretty amazing. Um, but the point is that when you have a perennial plant, its reproductive strategy um, it has many reproductive strategies, and that means that it can take time to really grow, and they have these really deep root structures. And the roots do many things. They provide a channel for water, so when it rains, there's the, the, the land can actually absorb that moisture, and then it holds that moisture uh, for a long time so that the plants can take it up after the rain you know, in the periods of dry between the rain, there's plenty of moisture for the whole community to have. Now with annual plants, their root systems are very, very shallow because they don't live very long. I mean, their only reproductive strategy is to produce a great big seed. So all their energy, you know, there's just everything goes into the next generation into producing that seed. So you get a big seed, but not much else. And then the plant dies and the seed falls to the ground and it just waits. And sometimes those annual seeds can wait, you know, many, many decades before they sprout. And, you know, in nature, there are these disasters. You can have a flood, a fire, whatever, and the land will be cleared, um, you know, for a short period of time by that disaster. And that's when the annuals really come to the fore. They they can't compete against those perennial root structures of, of the perennial plants. But if the land is cleared for one of those disasters, that's when they spring to life. So it's kind of like if you cut your your finger with a knife or something uh, and you'll put a Band-Aid on it. Well, that's what the annuals do. They're the Band-Aid because cleared land is, is really a, it's a biological disaster for the planet. And, and the life wants to cover that ground as fast as possible because soil is so important. So the annuals spring to life. They've got no competition for a year or two, and they're like the Band-Aid on your skin. And then as time goes by, the perennials fill in again, and that, that root system knits together again just like your, your skin does under the Band-Aid. And eventually you don't need the Band-Aid anymore, and, and you know, you're all healed up. And it's the same with the land. Eventually the perennials come back in, and they, they cover that land again, and then you don't see the annuals until the next disaster. So the problem with agriculture is that it's based on those annual plants. So in order to plant them, the land has to be cleared. 
And I want everybody to think about this for a minute. If you want to plant lettuce or tomatoes or, you know, broccoli or something for your garden, the first thing you have to do is clear the land in your backyard. You've got to make a little garden patch. And that means you have to dig up grass, probably. Um, There may be trees in the way you have to cut down. Regardless, it's a perennial plant you have to remove in order for there to be bare soil so that you can plant those seeds. If you just throw your lettuce or your broccoli outside on top of grass, nothing will happen. Okay, so extend that now across all the forests and, and the prairies of the world. They've all had to be cleared in just the same way in order for humans to grow things like corn and wheat and soy. And now you've got, you know, just acres and acres and acres, you know, across the world across the world um, where the, the native perennial polycultures have been removed, whether it was grasses or trees or wetlands or savannas or whatever the pattern was, it's gone. And what is grown instead are, are those annual plants. So you have to clear that land every year in order to plant the annual seeds. And this is just a war. It's an ongoing war against those plants that want to live there. Um, they're going to keep fighting back. And, you know, what's applied as weapons in this war are things like plows and fertilizers and fences and subsidies, because that's the only way that we can keep it going year after year. Um, so that's that's the main problem. And, of course, it's drawdown. So it's drawdown of those biotic communities. It's drawdown of the soil. It certainly is drawdown of the fossil water. Um, the aqu- aquifers in the United States are being completely emptied out now. There's They can only get to the water by using oil drilling equipment. I mean, it has to go down a mile or two now where there used to be a water table that, you know, normal people could actually reach. It's, it's long over. And this is the same across the world. It's true in China. It's true, true in India. Every place that humans have taken up agriculture, the water has just disappeared. So it's drawdown of water. Um, and ultimately, it's just, it's, you know, drawdown of the whole planet. So that's, that's the big problem. Um, in terms of repair, I mean, I actually have a lot of hope because, the planet really wants to be a perennial polyculture. You know, it really wants to be forest and grasslands and wetlands. And if we just got out of the way, those biotic communities would come back to place. Um, we can help. I mean, we can participate in that as well as humans. And really, that was what we did for our first four million years. We were participate, participants in, the, in that process along with every other living creature. It's really only in the last 10,000 years that we've turned into these kinds of monsters and destroyers, but that's, that's, not, that's not inevitable. I mean, we do know a better way, and there are still cultures that remember that better way. It's just that, you know, over the scope of this last 10,000 years, for those of us who live in, in urban and industrial cultures, we don't understand what we've done. We don't see the big picture. And I, I guess that's the reason that people like me write books, is we're really trying to get that information out there. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, You've you've mentioned soil and soil is alive and so what what does the soil eat? What how is it alive? Why is this important? If you take a tablespoon of soil, you can picture just a tablespoon. That contains over a million living organisms. Like that's how alive it is. If you had a handful of soil, there'd be over a billion living creatures. Um, a, a square meter of soil, so a great big box of soil could contain over a thousand different species of animals alone. And it's those creatures that do the basic work of life. They are constantly renewing 
um, the water cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the carbon cycle, all the stuff that the rest of us depend on, the plants and the animals, we can't do any of that. I mean, we're essentially, I don't know whether you want to call us consumers or parasites, but we can't do any of that. It's only those little microscopic creatures that can actually break down those nutrients, get nitrogen out of the air, and then make it available to the rest of the living community. So without them, we're dead. Um, we can't really see them with the naked eye. So it's a little bit, I think, humbling to know that our lives are completely dependent on these tiny, often single-celled creatures, but that's, that's it. That's, that's what life is, is, you know, and we could actually have, I mean, for billions of years, that's all, that's all that there was on this planet was just bacteria doing, and archaea doing their thing as single-celled organisms. Um, they don't actually need us, but we absolutely need them. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, can you explain to listeners um, why why humans are built to eat animal products, and what is the issue with um, like vegetarians using soy for their protein source? Right. Well, you know, one thing that I found very convincing was the archaeological evidence, and they dig up skeletons from people who were hunter gatherers, and anyone who's an archaeologist or a medical anthropologist can look at that bone and they can tell you in three seconds whether that skeleton belonged to hunter-gatherer people or agricultural people. And they can tell because the hunter-gatherers have these long, strong, disease-free bones and the agriculturists look horrible. Um, The first thing that happens when people take up agriculture is they shrink six inches and their teeth fall out. And the archaeological evidence could not be clearer. Their bones are just riddled with diseases, and the people are way too small, and their skulls, you know, their teeth are a mess. Um, So there's plenty of signs of disease, and some of these diseases would have been quite painful. Um, Lots of malnutrition um, and chronic hunger. In hunter-gatherer bones, you will find periods of hunger, so probably in February or March in the Northern Hemisphere. I know it's different where you are, um, but at the end of the hunting season, you know, there would have been a month or two where they might not have had access to good food. So you can see these kind of striations where growth would have stopped, especially for children, but then they would have been fine again. So, yeah, there might have been periods of hunger, but hunger was not institutionalized into mass starvation. And with agriculturists, that's what you see over and over, is when the food supply collapses for whatever reason, people are just starving. And then you get really awful things like, you know, signs of out-and-out cannibalism because they're so hungry. So that's number one. Number two is looking at contemporary hunter-gatherers and comparing them to the health of industrial populations and agricultural peoples. And it's just no question these people are in incredibly strong and resilient, um, we have a concept called the diseases of civilization. And these diseases include cancer and diabetes and heart disease and all the autoimmune diseases. And they're called the diseases of civilization because they only occur in agricultural peoples. There are no corresponding diseases of hunter-gatherers. So this has really been a disaster for human health. And it's very dramatic with diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease. But the archaeological evidence for rheumatoid follows the spread of wheat across Europe. So they take up wheat for whatever reason, and then right away you see evidence of, of rheumatoid arthritis in the skeletons. And it's very dramatic because, you know, that that disease really you know, just cripples people's joints. And you can see it very clearly. Even lay people can see that that's indeed what these people had. Um, so I found that evidence very compelling um, to say that 
you know, there is a human template and it does need certain foods. And on the other hand, so there's, there's two problems with the kind of plant-based diet that the vegetarians take up. One is what are the substances in, of which there are too many in the diet? And then you have the deficiency problem, all the nutrients we need that you're simply not going to get enough of. So the overload is essentially sugar because it's a diet based on carbohydrate food. Um, you know, those, the soft foods that, you know, especially with the children, when, you know, the hunter-gatherer children, their first meal probably would have been something like raw liver. Um, but in agricultural societies, their first food is going to be some kind of pablum, like a wheat cereal or a corn cereal. And they end up with all these terrible diseases from lack of iron, um, from lack of protein, and, and from lack of adequate fat. So the carbohydrates will displace the really nutrient-dense foods, the animal foods that, that we actually evolved eating. Um, and so, you know, one thing to remember is that meat contains anywhere from 10 to 100 times more nutrients than plant foods. And then that's just the muscle meat. If you actually look at the organ meats, those contain from 10 to 100 times more nutrients than the muscle meat. And right now, in North America anyway, people have really abandoned eating um, those organ meats. And they really concentrate on the muscle meats more. This is kind of crazy. I mean... Pretty much forever, those were the foods that were really considered sacred, things like liver and heart and even brain. Um, people knew that those were the most nutrient-dense foods, and you know there would often be ceremony involved in taking the liver out of the animal and who got to eat it first, and, and, and it was just it was all done very could be done very ceremonially, but people understood that that was the most important part of the animal to eat, um, and that's why is that they're very very nutrient-dense. So when you eat this plant-based diet, you know, you're getting an overload of sugar, which of course leads right away to, to diabetes and all kinds of blood sugar problems. Combine that high insulin level that those foods demand with that overload of omega-6s and you're going to end up with heart disease. And that's really the cause of heart disease. I know cholesterol has been totally vilified over you know the last 20 years in the United States, but they've got completely the wrong culprit. The problem is the omega-6s and the high insulin. That is what damages people's blood vessels. It's also, you know, ultimately kind of the, the base that creates cancer because cancer eats sugar. Um, so if you're going to eat this high-carbohydrate diet, you're just feeding cancer cells. And then there's a lot of research about, you know, what creates autoimmune diseases and um, it, it often will include this process called molecular mimicry. And what that means is that there will be strings of proteins in things like wheat gluten that look exactly like human tissue. And when, when those substances, when those little bits of protein get through the intestinal wall and into your bloodstream, your immune system freaks out. It can't tell what's you and what's not you anymore. And in consequence, it will instead attack things like your joints or your brain or your thyroid or your pancreas. And that's why it's because these plant substances look so much like um, human tissue. So that that's kind of the, the too much side. And then you've got the not enough side. So there's not enough protein. Um, there certainly is not enough animal fat. And the, those saturated fats are so important for human health. You know, like your lungs, for instance, the, the very surface layer of your lungs um, is nothing but saturated fat. And that's what, lets, that's what lets the air exchange happen. That's the mechanism that our bodies use. And this is why I've gotten so many letters from people who are asthmatic who say, wow, I took out all the grain and all the industrial seed oils and I started eating this more paleo-type diet with lots of saturated fat and I haven't eaten my inhaler for six weeks. 
get letters from really grateful parents, the same thing, that their, parent, that their, their children have been cured from life-threatening asthma by simply switching the diet. So that's your lungs. Then you've got your brain. Uh, your brain is almost 80% fat. And on so many levels, you will not have good mental health without enough saturated fat. We are actually a series of electrical impulses inside a watery environment, which sounds very contradictory. But the only way that those electrical impulses are going to flow you know, down our nerves is if the nerves are coated with some kind of insulating s- substance. And that substance is saturated fat. So our brains can't work without saturated fat, and you're going to end up with things like MS, you know, these really nasty diseases um, if you don't have enough saturated fat to replace that insulating sheath. Um, And this is why until medications were developed, the best diet that doctors could provide for kids with epilepsy was a high-fat diet because it calmed down the nervous system. yeah, all the all the um, precursors in the world, even if you're eating tons of tryptophan in your diet, without enough saturated fat, your body cannot make the conversion, and your neurotransmitters simply will not transmit. You've got to eat saturated fat for that. Um, your intestinal tract changes cells every 48 hours. You've got a new intestinal tract, and most of the building blocks for that is is cholesterol. So you've got to be eating some saturated fat in order to get that. And I'll add one more thing, which is that all of your sex hormones are made from cholesterol. Cholesterol is like the mother hormone. It's the building block for all of it. So that includes all your sex hormones. Um, But every hormone that you need um, has got to be made from that base substance of cholesterol. And this is why so many people who go vegetarian and vegan end up with um, sort of crashed libidos is because they simply don't have enough sex hormones. And a lot of women, myself included, you know, stop menstruating. And that's why we simply don't have the hormones that we need without eating that base substance of, of cholesterol-saturated fat. So that, those are some of the things that are missing in a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet. Um, certainly there's things like B12 and other B vitamins that are hard to get a hold of, CoQ10, the iron, all the minerals really, very hard to get from plant substances. You really need to be eating meat for those. So in all, you know, just to kind of sum up on this, there's, there's some substances you're going to get too much of, and that would essentially be sugar and omega-6s, and there's a bunch of stuff you'll never get enough of, and that includes protein, fat, and that, that whole host of minerals. Yeah, totally. And it's the vitamins A, D, E, and K that are all in your animal products, isn't it? And they're all linked to your, if you're low on your fat, you've got, it's linked to depression and even suicide, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you can get vitamin A from vegetables. That's not true. What you can get is a precursor to vitamin A. So it's pro-vitamin A. Beta carotene is pro-vitamin A. It's not actually vitamin A. So your body has to do the conversion. And a lot of us simply can't do it. And those people are called obligate carnivores. They will die if they do not eat vitamin A in its full form because they, they lack the enzyme to do the conversion. And this is true for a lot of people who... Um, come from genetic stock of island or coastal peoples because if if your people ate tons of seafood for the last 10,000 years, you simply stopped making that enzyme. So if you're feeling funny on a vegetarian diet, think about your ethnic history. You know, did your people come from, you know, the Gaelic Islands or from, you know, Sweden or Norway or someplace people would have eaten a lot of seafood? Uh, 
yeah, that could be the problem. You simply aren't doing the conversion. Um, even people who are very healthy and do have the enzyme, it takes eight units of, of pro-carotene, beta-carotene or pro-vitamin A to make a full unit of, of actual vitamin A. The young and the old are particularly bad at doing it. So children for sure have got to get vitamin A. Another myth is that we can get vitamin D from sunshine. It's true we can convert some. And again, it starts with cholesterol. And then the action of the sun on our skin can help turn that cholesterol into vitamin D. But honestly, unless you live at the equator and you're running around naked most of the day, you simply cannot do it. There's not going to be enough vitamin D that's made um, by your body to, to fulfill all the needs that you have for it. And a lot of people who start taking you know, a good vitamin D supplement will find that a whole host of problems can go away, including depression, including autoimmune diseases are really helped by vitamin D. Um, so don't believe that the sunshine's enough because it's just not. It's not going to be enough for most of us. And one of the only studies that's ever been done about vegan children, and this is very grim, um, it was in Boston, Massachusetts, a very northern latitude in the United States. And in the wintertime, 50% of these kids had signs of rickets in their bones, and it's just purely the lack of vitamin D. Yeah. Uh, so uh, in your book, you have quite a, um, a detailed section about questions that vegetarians could ask themselves about their health. Could you go into this a little bit? Well, I think the main problem, two main problems that people have pretty quickly on the, the vegetarian, especially the vegan kind of diet, the first is the blood sugar problems. And a lot of us ended up hypo, hypoglycemic or even out and out diabetic. So if you find yourself constantly craving food and getting shaky and lightheaded, feeling dizzy or really cranky in between feeding, such that you have to eat every two or three hours, you're hypoglycemic and that's not normal. And what's happening is every time you eat, you're dumping a load of sugar into your body. Now your pancreas is forced to release a whole bunch of insulin. So your insulin levels go way up. Um, insulin is not a very delicate hormone. It grabs a hold of everything and pulls it out of your bloodstream as fast as it can. The reason is because this is a biological emergency. Uh, humans can only live with a very narrow range of blood sugar. If it's too high or too low, you can go into a coma and die. So the moment that there's too much sugar in your blood, your body responds as if this is an emergency and it sends out as much insulin as it can. Um, it's not a very precise mechanism. And so what will happen is the insulin will grab onto all that sugar, pull it out of the blood, and now you've got low blood sugar. And that's when you start to feel really shaky and lightheaded and dizzy and cranky and you're desperate to eat. And it's true. You, you do need to eat. And that's the reason why it's that insulin did its job too well. And now you have to eat again, except that if you're eating that plant-based diet, you're going to start the whole thing all over again because what you're going to eat is another load of sugar. And this is this tremendous roller coaster that you're on when you're eating those high-carb diets. Um, I mean, you just feel like crap all the time. By the time I was done being a vegan, I pretty much had to eat constantly. Like every half an hour, I had to put something in my mouth or I felt like I was going to die. Um, the first few days, you know, that you, you sort of go through that withdrawal process and decide to go on a more appropriate human diet, it's really hard because you've trained your pancreas to release all that insulin every time you eat. And it really takes three or four days for things to calm down, but it's well worth it. So if you, if you are suspicious at all that you've got blood sugar problems, it's worth looking into this some more. It's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. Eventually, your insulin receptors will wear out. Insulin receptors are on every cell in your body, and it's the insulin acts like a key, you know, and it it, it 
inserts into the lock of the receptor and opens the cell and sugar can either go in or you can, you can get it out or whatever, but it's the insulin and then the insulin receptor that make that process happen. And over time, when you're eating those plant-based diets or too much sugar in any way, uh, you will wear out those receptors. So the key can't fit into the lock anymore. And even when you have tons of sugar you know, floating around in your bloodstream, your body can't access the energy. And this is why you know, they've got this all backwards when they say, oh, obese people are lazy. That's not it. Obese people feel like crap and they're exhausted because their bodies cannot access that sugar because the insulin receptors are so worn down. Um, so, you know, we need to have compassion for people who have done what they thought was the right thing um, and ended up a mess in, just in terms of, you know, their endocrine systems and that, that hormone load of the insulin. Uh, the only thing that's really going to help is, is going on some kind of more appropriate low-carb diet where there's not all that sugar floating around in their bloodstreams. Um, and then eventually your insulin receptors can resensitize a bit and you won't feel so sick anymore. But you know, the most important thing is to stop that flood of sugar, you know, every hour, every two hours into your bloodstream to get things to level off. You will feel dramatically better in a few days. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, um, I would say, is depression and anxiety. That eating those diets without the proper building blocks for neurotransmitters. So if you're not eating enough protein, you'll never get enough serotonin. Uh, you'll never get enough catecholamines. All the chemicals that make our, our lives feel happy and calm and, you know, like we can go ahead and, you know, face the day. None of that is possible if you're not getting enough protein and enough fat to actually do the transfer. Um, and I think that's probably the number one email that I get from people is the, the depression, the exhaustion, the anxiety, just things they never struggled with until they went vegetarian. And five, 10 years into it, you know, life just becomes unbearable and they're on antidepressant drugs and it's still only barely working. They try eating a more appropriate diet and two weeks later, they feel dramatically better. Um, and those are, you know, very, I feel very honored to get those kinds of emails because it's, you know, I've really helped somebody who was suffering, um, but that's probably the most common email that I get is the depression anxiety people who are you know just dramatically transformed by eating something more appropriate. So I think those are the two biggest things that are going to happen to people pretty quickly. Um, a lot of women have fertility issues eating those diets, and that's a whole host of problems there. One is, you know, again, not enough fat, not enough protein, not enough hormones to actually be releasing enough estrogen to be producing enough estrogen. Um, you know, problems with menstruation. Um, and then um, I think one of the other main problems that people have is they end up with all kinds of degenerative and autoimmune conditions, and that's more long-term, but that's especially gluten is fingered for that one. So going gluten-free especially, um, people can see dramatic results with that. Okay, soy. You mentioned soy. Um, there's a few problems with soy. One is that um, it contains a lot of phytoestrogens, and these are substances that look enough like estrogen that the human body is fooled. So the phytoestrogens will lock onto your estrogen receptors, but they aren't actually, it's not actually estrogen, so your body can't really use it. And your body doesn't understand that it's not getting what it needs because the receptors are filled, and yet you're really at this depleted state. Um, and so that's a, it's a real problem, and it's a, it's a huge hormone load that doesn't behave the way that it should. If you are feeding your child soy formula instead of breast milk or animal milk, that is a hormone load equivalent to giving that child four birth control pills a day. Mm -hmm. That's really scary 
nobody in their right mind would give their child, you know, their infant child birth control pills. But that's what people are doing when they feed soy formula to their infants without realizing. And those are some of the most disturbing correspondences that I've had with people, people who have three and four-year-old children, and they're horrified now by what they've done because you've got, you know, these four-year-old girls who are already entering precocious puberty, which is insane. I mean, there's no way these children are going to be healthy long-term. And the parents are horrified. They didn't know. They thought they were doing the right thing. And their children now are probably going to bear, you know, a health burden for the rest of their lives. And it's strictly about the soy. There are more pediatricians now who are on to this, but a lot of them still aren't. And there are a few countries now like Switzerland that you can only get soy formula for your infant if there are no other options. If the child is super allergic to animal milk, if the mother can't breastfeed for any reason, um, and it's the only option, um, then you can get a prescription for it. But otherwise, they understand that this is very dangerous for children to be drinking soy, soy products. So that's one problem is the hormone load. Problem number two is um, soy contains... Um, inhibitors. Now, a lot of plants do this. It's the way that they protect themselves. They don't really want to be eaten by us. Okay. So they, they're, they're very good at chemical warfare. They can't move, right? So they can't fight in the ways that animals can. But what they do instead is they create these substances that are really toxic to animals. So you can eat me, but you're going to get really sick if you do. And that includes those phytoestrogens because what the plant is doing is saying, yeah, you can eat me, but you're not going to be able to reproduce. So we're going to stop this right now. Um, They've got other chemicals that they use as well. And so some of these are the uh, substances that will inhibit your digestive enzymes. And this is why a lot of people who eat a lot of soy um, end up with really bad stomach problems, the bloating, the gas, sometimes even really horrible pain from eating soy, and they don't know what it is. Um, again, this is supposed to be this you know wonderful, peaceful, nonviolent, totally you know justice-oriented food, soy. Like, what could be wrong with soy? They end up. You know, in the hospital, I mean, I'm not making this up. They end up in the emergency room having really scary kind of bariatric te- or, um, you know, tests in there, you know, swallowing the radioactive barium and getting all the x-rays and the CAT scans and stuff, trying to figure out why am I in this horrifying pain? And it turns out it was the soy the whole time. And it was simply the trypsin inhibitors. Trypsin is an enzyme that you need to digest your food. And soy is really good at blocking you know, the, the production of that enzyme. Um, it also contains protease inhibitors, same thing. These are enzymes that you need to digest and eat enough soy and you, you won't produce enough. And so a, a lot of people have been saved from a lot of pain by simply removing the soy from their diets. So if any of your listeners are experiencing intestinal distress on a regular basis, you might think about withdrawing from the soy for a week or two and see what happens. I've had friends, people you know, in my life who were having things like bloody diarrhea. I mean, just really serious problems. Like, what is wrong? And you know, it was an ulcerative colitis. I mean, it looked that serious. And in fact, it was just the soy milk. When they took the soy milk out, it healed up in a few days, never to be seen again. So it's scary stuff. Um, another problem is that soy is very good at blocking the enzyme that we need in the hippocampus of our brains, an enzyme that's about memory formation. And I've seen this with a lot of young vegans in particular. They have terrible memories, Um, can't remember anything. And I'm not talking about people who are 70 or 80. I mean people who are still in their teens and 20s, and they simply have no memories. And that's exactly why. It's because the soy is blocking their ability to create memories in their brains. So that's another problem with soy. Um, It's not actually a complete protein. Uh, People claim that it is, but again, it's it's just too low in tryptophan to really be providing for a healthy, calm mental state. Um, It also is very good at blocking mineral uptake 
digestive tract. So if you eat enough soy, even if you were eating things like bone broth every day or tons of seafood, which is very high in minerals, you still wouldn't have enough to overcome the mineral blocking abilities of soy. So for all those reasons, I don't consider soy an appropriate food for humans. In particular, those highly processed soy foods like the meat analogs, like fake bacon and soy milk, really scary when you look into how those things are made. And a lot of carcinogenic substances are produced in the manufacture of them. So I would highly recommend that people look a little further into this before they, they keep consuming them, especially if they have children. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a few ways that people have eaten soy sort of traditionally in Asia, and we've sort of been led to believe that they use it as a protein source, you know, or have for centuries, and this is a traditional thing. It's not really true. Um, they eat about two tablespoons a day, and it's mostly eaten as a condiment, and it's highly fermented. So things like miso, if you want to eat a little miso every day, I don't see a problem with that. The fermentation takes care of some of the nutrient blocking substances in soy. So when you ferment it, those the bacteria works on those and makes them go away essentially. So the fermentation really helps. And it not being a highly processed industrial food, of course, means those carcinogens aren't produced either. And usually miso is eaten with things like fish broth. So that sort of makes up for some of the detriments of soy as well. So if you want to eat a little miso with your fish broth, I would say go ahead. But the kinds of ways that you know soy, these highly processed soy products are being added to our diets, that's never been done before. And people certainly haven't eaten 30 or 40 or 50 grams a day of it. I mean, this is a brand new experiment that's being done on us. Yeah, totally. It's so scary. I can't, yeah. Um, so uh, just to finish off, um, I mean, you've just covered so much information in there. It's just uh, fantastic. It's, do you have any, you know, sort of final words of wisdom that you'd like to give to our listeners or where they can find you or just information? You know, what I always try to emphasize is that the values that underlie the vegetarian ethic are not the problem. So compassion and justice and sustainability, that's the motivating ethic of my life. And I think that's, you know, 99% of the reason why people go vegetarian. You don't have to give those values up. You know, if you are currently a vegetarian or a vegan, you don't have to give up that you know, that really profound commitment that you've made to justice and to a better world. Um, but there is information that you are lacking about what agriculture does and about what agricultural products are doing to your body. And I would just encourage people to keep an open mind. You know, if you if you had a mind that was open enough to consider being a vegan, you can be brave enough to look at this information and see if you need to make another decision now. And I know that's a really hard process. I know how terrifying that can be. Um, but it's well worth doing both for the planet, for your own health, and especially if you have children. I really want everybody – I would just encourage everybody to look at this one more time. Um, if you want to find out more information about my book and about me, you can go to my website, which if, as long as you know how to spell my name, it's easy to find, leair.com. And you can see my books and my lecture schedule and all of that. Um, and finally, I would end with the best website that I know about nutrition, which is the Weston Price Foundation. And their website is westonprice.org. But if you have any questions about the importance of animal foods to human health, that is absolutely the best place to start. And it's a fabulous place to start in terms of finding these better animal products that are raised in a truly humane and sustainable manner. They have information on their website about the farms you can go to yeah absolutely and i'll put all of those links on my website so people can find you nice and easily so
So I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's just so valuable and so fantastic to have you on here. Well, thanks, and thanks for all the work you do. No, no problem. Hey, we'll talk to you really soon.